Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. This week, we're going to rebroadcast a conversation about Michael Novak that we first released on the podcast in March 2017, shortly after Novak's death. It's now been three years since Michael Novak passed away. He was a Roman Catholic theologian, philosopher, and author, and was a powerful defender of human liberty. In this episode, Acton Samuel Gregg shares Novak's life story, starting with his time on the left in the 1960s and 70s, and sharing how Novak eventually made a gradual shift toward conservative thought. Novak's change to conservatism resulted in the publication of his most famous book in 1982, called The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism. In this book, Novak grounded a defense for a free market in Judeo-Christianity, influencing how many Catholics and Protestants thought about economics for decades to come. As Greg recently wrote, no religious intellectual can match Novak's influence in facilitating this transformation through the written word in America and throughout the world. You can check out extra articles and resources for this episode in our show notes, posted at blog.acton.org. And if you like this episode, you can help our podcast team reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend. Act in Line is available on Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Well, it's a, a sort of a sad occasion that brings us together for Radio Free Acton today. It's always sad when uh, a good friend and mentor passes away, and at the Acton Institute, we are experiencing that at this time with the passing of uh, Michael Novak. Uh, if you don't know who Michael Novak is, uh, we're going to tell you a little bit about him today, but uh, the thumbnail sketch is he's a Roman Catholic author, theologian, uh, scholar, philosopher, uh, and, and just a, a great man of the 20th century. And uh, he was a friend of, uh, of the Acton Institute for a very long time, a mentor to our founder, Father Robert Sirico, uh, who in his uh, video tribute to Michael Novak actually said he was kind of like the grandfather of the Acton Institute. And with us today to talk about uh, Michael Novak's life, his influence, his legacy, is Dr. Samuel Gregg, our director of research here at the Acton Institute. Sam, thanks for joining us today. Mark, it's always good to be with you. Well, let's talk a little bit about Michael Novak. Uh, I think most people, there, there, there's a good chance that, uh, that there's a lot of people who don't really know who he is, what his influence was. Uh, and, and a lot of people who know him think of him as a man, a, a sort of a conservative uh, stalwart and scholar, a man of the right. Uh, but he did not start off that way intellectually back in the 1960s when he was getting his start as a writer. Uh, he uh, actually spent some time covering... The Second Vatican Council uh, wrote articles for the National Catholic Reporter. He uh, ended up writing a book at the time of the council called The Open Church, and he was he was a man really of the left. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Novak's, when he started, what did it mean to be a man of the left in the church at that time, and why was he controversial? Well, I think it's true to say that to be a man of the left in the, let's say, early 1960s, especially for a, a Roman Catholic American at that time, what that basically meant was that you were more or less viewing the Democratic Party as your natural home. And the Democratic Party then was a very different beast to what it is today. I think it meant uh, a certain degree of suspicion of free markets, a suspicion of 
modernity, if you like, but also very much a very a strong commitment to the poor, a very strong identification with what you might call the industrial working class. And that's very much the background that Michael came from. He was born in Johnstown in Western Pennsylvania in 1933. That was a coal town, an industrial town. And he came from a very poor ethnic Slovak migrant family. So for someone of his background, even someone who was as well-educated as he turned out to be, it was instinctively natural for people of that ethnic, religious, and economic background to gravitate towards the Democratic Party. And at the time, that meant things like Keynesian economics. It meant um, a high degree of government intervention into the economy. But also, at that time, it was... It was still very much a position of what you might call social conservatism. These were not people who were in favor of all the different different liberation movements you might call them of of today. These are people who uh, found things like abortion to be abhorrent, who would have been horrified at same sex marriage, etc., etc., etc. And the left today is, of course, a very different entity to what it was when Michael Novak was beginning his life as an intellectual in the nineteen. Uh, 60s, early 1960s. As you mentioned, he uh, attended two sessions of the Second Vatican Council, 1963 and 1964, as a lay journalist, a lay freelance journalist, who had who had uh, gone all the way through to almost being ordained as a priest. Uh, but he decided against that. He decided he was not called to be a priest, so he was never ordained, and instead he went into the lay world and tried to make his way as a, a lay Catholic intellectual, and which was still at that time somewhat of a rar- rarity. So to be of someone of his, his background, of his interests, we shouldn't be surprised that he was essentially, like a good number of people at that time, uh, a man of the left. And later on in the really, I think, beginning in the very late 1960s, heading into the 1970s, he shifted his, not just his economic thinking, but his political and theological thinking as well. Let me ask, let me ask this. He, he caused some controversy for himself uh, with his book, The Open Church. What specifically caused the con- more conservative elements of the church to be concerned about what Novak was writing in, in, in regards to the Catholic faith? Well, in retrospect, when you look back at that book, which came out in 1964, I believe, and was based on his account of the two, two of the four council sessions. So the council began in 1962 and it ended in 1965. And he covered the, as a lay journalist, the sessions of 1963 and 1964. And one of the things he did was to present the personalities of the different people involved in the council, so different cardinals, archbishops, even Paul VI, who of course was the pope who presided over uh, the last three sessions of the council. And Michael, like a good number of other European and American Catholic intellectuals at the time, was very keen to see the Catholic Church, the expression was, to open up to the world. But that, And that did not mean simply just accepting holus bolus everything that the modern world had to say about everything. It was much more a question of trying to critically engage with the world produced by the Enlightenment, to which the Catholic Church had in many respects shut itself off since the French Revolution, which was not a very pleasant experience for the Church, but it also meant that the modern world, the modern Enlightenment, 
the development of new ideas about politics and the, and the economy, the instinctive reaction of a good number of Catholics was to be very uh, suspicious of all that because it was associated with forces and movements, philosophical and political, which had had a very bad track record of anti-Catholicism. So for someone like Michael Novick to come along and say, no, I think we need to take the, ch- the modern world more seriously. There are some things that the church can learn from the modern world. For many Catholics at the time, that was at a minimum a challenging mental exercise. I see. So it's it's not something necessarily that we'd find shocking today. Actually, we'd probably not find it pretty run of the mill today in, in terms of the way we think. Relatively conservative, actually, because we would you read the open book, uh, the open church uh, today, and it all sounds rather mild. Actually, there's nothing there that would particularly shocks me, but if I could imagine it shocking my grandparents see, yeah. or my great grandparents, uh, because the the whole view of modernity in the modern world among an older generation of of Catholics in Europe and America and the Anglo-American world was instinctively one of suspicion. And when you look at the open church now, you think, well, this is all rather mild. It's not saying anything particularly uh, radical. But at the time, some of the things that Michael said in that particular book would have been shocking for some audiences. Just uh, more evidence of of how greatly the world has changed uh, in in the last 40, 50 years uh, right there. After this period of his life, Novak went on to uh, be a teacher at various universities, an author, philosopher, developed that part of his career. And of course, as the world was changing, uh, he was changing too. Something happened in between the time that uh, he published that book, The Open Church, uh, that caused so much controversy at the time. And he held the, the, the sort of the standard Keynesian Democratic Party views of the of the 1960s mm-hmm. uh, until you get to right around 1980 and you start to see a, a different Michael Novak emerge. What was it that he saw? What was it that he was reading, engaging with during the course of the late 60s and the 1970s that caused him to change his views on economics uh, and, and maybe other things? Well, I think it's important to note here that immediately after the Second Vatican Council, Michael Novak went even further to the left. So he wrote, wrote a book called the, the, A Theology of for Radical Politics, and he was very much involved, not in the sort of Jane Fonda, Tom Hayden left, but he knew all those people, and to a certain extent he embraced some of their ideas. Uh, he also, in, terms, in Catholic terms, for example, uh, he was um, a person who supported and advocated for a change of the Catholic Church's position on the subject of contraception. That's not very well known today, not least because Michael changed his mind later in life about that subject and became very much an adherent of and defender of Humane Vitae. So you do have this shift initially further to the left after the Council, but then the late 1960s, early 1970s, I think it's true to say that Michael started to become very concerned about the direction that the left was taking theologically, politically, and economically. Uh, He would often tell the story about how when he was campaigning for Democratic Party candidates, he'd be in, for example, Western Pennsylvania, and he tells the story of standing there outside a factory where people from his ethnic background and his, his economic background, these workers were coming out of the the factory. And there's a woman there who's uh, wearing a short skirt and a big pro-choice 
uh, sticker, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it struck him at the time. He said, "What is going on here? This, this, this is the party that <clears throat> and group and and side of politics that ostensibly represents my people. But I know these people coming out of this factory are absolutely horrified by what they're seeing and what this particular person represents. And I, there's something going on here. So there was that sense that." The left was essentially abandoning those people who had been much of its bulwark for such a long period of time. It was moving much more towards uh, liberal middle class issues and not so much interested in the economic welfare of blue collar working class people anymore. So that was one thing. Another thing I think happened was uh, he became more, shall we say, theologically conservative. He didn't like some of the chaos he saw in the Catholic Church. Uh, that really started to become much more manifested in the 1970s. Uh, And also, I think, like many other people, well, some people, we should say, on the left at the time, in the 1970s, he started looking around and saying, well, Keynesianism doesn't seem to be working. We have high unemployment and high inflation. Those two things are not supposed to go together. Uh, We have... Uh, a United States that seems uncertain of itself in the face of Soviet communism, and Michael was always a very strong anti-communist. We have uh, social disorder going on in the universities, and of course he's teaching in places places like uh, Stanford, for example, and he's seeing the very worst of the student rebellions that, that began in 1968 and all continued all the way through the 1970s. Uh, so I think it's true to say that it was a combination of th- rethinking his ideas in light of these experiences, but also some of the, the, the data of those experiences themselves that caused him to start asking questions about, well, maybe the ancient Christian faith is what it says it is, and maybe some of this modernistic theology that I've been uh, indulging in really doesn't seem to make much sense from a longer-term perspective. Maybe I need to also rethink my my type of more or less generally social democratic view of how the economy works. And maybe I also need to ask some questions about what actually gets people out of poverty. He tells a story that I think it was in the uh, mid-1970s when he first, quote-unquote, came out as an advocate of free markets. And he makes the point there that when he gave a paper at Notre Dame talking about this issue... When he went back to sit down after giving this paper where he said, look, basically, I think capitalism works and social democracy doesn't, no one would talk to him. So he had basically violated one of those unspoken, at the time, unspoken orthodoxies of the time. And this, I think, and other experiences shifted him towards a, a, a more open mind when it came to what you might call theologically orthodox positions towards politically conservative positions and economically free market positions. You, you noted his strong anti-communism, and I, I, I'd throw in as well back in 2012 uh, when he was having a discussion uh, with Father Robert Sirico uh, at Acton University. One of the things he noted about his anti-communism was that in part it was rooted in the fact that he had relatives Absolutely. Living uh, behind the Iron Curtain and knew about the, the, the oppressive nature of those regimes. And so he had personal experience of it and wasn't going to fall for the utopianism of the left in that regard. Yes. He, uh, his grandparents on both sides of the family came from Slovakia, which at the time wasn't even a country. It was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, and then after the First World War and up until 1993, Slovakia was part of Czechoslovakia. 
so, but he had relatives who had lived under fascism, who had lived under communist rule for very long periods of time. He regretted the fact that he did not speak Slovak. His parents did, but he said he would often talk about his parents when they needed to talk to, to each other about things they didn't want their children to understand. They would talk in what he called their secret language. And he realizes now, he realized later in life that they were actually speaking Slovak. Uh, and he, when in the 1990s after the fall of communism, I think this is when he started to reconnect with his Slovak ethnic heritage. And he must have gone there probably dozens of times uh, from the late early, early 1990s up until very, very recently. In fact, he set up a whole free society seminar in which he would bring Americans and Slovaks together to talk about uh, orthodox, orthodox Christianity, free markets, capitalism, democracy, and a whole range of issues. Uh, so he spent quite a bit of time trying to basically bring many of the ideas that he had expressed most eloquently, perhaps in his magnum opus, The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism, back to, if you like, the, the land of his forefathers, because America had been very good to his family, had taken his family from poverty to refl- rel- uh, relative affluence in a relatively short period of time. And he wanted his grandparents country, his, his forebears homeland, to have, have some experience and know how to live the blessings of liberty. So there was a, he was in a way paying back a debt, but he also had this great confidence that America had some unique things to offer the rest of the world. And that was one of the things he tried to offer to Slovakia. 1982 rolls around and Michael Novak publishes what was, I think, safe to say his magnum opus, uh, The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism. It's a hugely important book uh, in conservative circles, I think it's fair to say. And uh, talk a little bit about the book, about the thesis of the book and and about its impact when it was released and and its, its continuing impact today. Well, I think it's important to note that when The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism came out in 1982, the world was not a very happy place. Uh, Ronald Reagan, I think many people at the time thought was going to be a one-term president. Uh, the Argentine junta had invaded the Falklands. Um, the, the Soviets, via the Communist Party in Poland, had crushed the Solidarity Movement. Uh, so it was not a very happy time, if you like, for freedom. And this book appeared, and it was considered very, very challenging at the time for a number of reasons. One is this was the first book by a very well-known theologian who had was willing to take a very positive uh, and affirming view of what he called democratic capitalism. And by that he meant a free economy, a virtuous culture, and a democratic political system. So it's a three-pronged system. And so this fit very well with much of the message that was being articulated, particularly by the Reagan revolution at the time. And it's important to remember here that Michael Novak was one of the people involved in what was called Democrats for Reagan in 1980. And he voted for Reagan in 1980, I suspect, although he remained up until 2010 a member of the Democratic Party. Really? Oh, yes. Really? Yes, and I mean, he he had not voted for them for a long time because he rejected their position on abortion. He said that abortion was the issue that basically led to his split with the Democratic Party, which was true and is true for very large, 
big segments of Catholic opinion in the in the United States then and now. And when this book came out, uh, it was re- greeted with incredulity by some, particularly by what you might call uh, the theological left in both the, the Roman Catholic and the evangelical world. Uh, secular supporters of markets were a little perplexed by this because this was making a this book was making a very strong theological and non-libertarian case for market economies and capitalism. It was very explicit about that, and he was also critiquing what he would call the anti-capitalist traditions that existed within the broad Christian small C church, ranging from anything from distributism to corporatism to sort of various forms of Christian social democracy, etc., etc. So while there were lots of people at the time, um, Roman Catholics, evangelicals, uh, Eastern Orthodox, who thought this was a wonderful book because it was giving a take and an understanding of the market economy and the political and cultural supports for that economy, uh, there were lots and lots of people, many, many Christians who did not like this book. And in some respects, I think, never really forgave Novak for turning away from the left. Even today, you'll, you'll run into people who were of his age, and Michael died when he was 83 years old, but you'll run into plenty of what you might call older, uh, economically and politically left-wing Christians who the name Michael Novak is more or less anathema to them. Even though he was in person a, a wonderfully affable man, did not say a bad word about people. He would have affable disagreements, very courteous disagreements with people. He was always civil to those he disagreed with. But I think uh, the view on the left is that once you leave them, you're left. You're gone. And and uh, he they never the, really forgot. They never forgave him. He committed the unforgivable sin. In in some respects, that's true. And he also, at this same time in the 1980s. This was a time when liberation theology was starting to make an impact, certainly in much of the Catholic Church in Latin America, but also in many Christian circles, both Catholic and evangelical, uh, in the United States. And he was writing articles that were very, very critical of liberation theology, not just on the theological side, but also saying, but you people don't actually have anything concrete to offer. Because when it comes down to the practical solutions that you offer, you don't actually have practical solutions that go beyond very vague commitments to collectivizing property uh, and being kind to one another. Not to mention the reliance upon some very distinctly unchristian themes such as class warfare. So this was in the 1980s, I think, was a very tough intellectual time for Michael Novak and those Christians, uh, both Roman Catholic and Evangelical, who were trying to make a case for a revived orthodoxy, a commitment to market economies, and a positive view of the free society that went beyond the sort of standard libertarian arguments that uh, many people had hitherto relied upon when it was coming to defending free markets. Novak's thought would go on to be quite uh, important in the in the work of, of Pope John Paul II, uh, especially when it came to the uh, pro- probably uh, the the encyclical that I, as one of the Protestant staffers here at the Acton Institute, have heard heard the name of more than any other, uh, which would be Centesimus Annus uh, of nineteen ninety one, I believe. That's right. And when that encyclical came out, many people immediately 
noted that they detected the influence of aspects of Michael Novak's thought on particular parts of the encyclical. Now, strictly speaking, uh, people who have contributed to encyclicals, the rule is you don't talk about it. That uh, the, in the end, the document is signed off by the Pope. The document belongs to the Pope. It's not the drafter's document. Uh, but Michael did talk occasionally, and particularly in a, in a little book he wrote towards the end of his life called Writing from Left to Right, in which he talks about how uh, at, at this period in the lead up to this encyclical, Centesimus Animus, which means one, literally means 100 years, and it was the 100th anniversary of Rerum Novarum. In this particular book, Michael talks about how uh, he would be asked particular questions by particular Vatican officials when it came to things that might or might not go into the encyclical. So this is all very informal. Nothing is really written down in any detail. It's much more by way of conversation. But he says in his memoirs that some of the themes that he tried to convey to some of the officials who were in touch with him did end up turning up in aspects of the encyclical. And they would concern things like the affirmation of the entrepreneur and the particular view that of human creativity that's taken in that encyclical, the generally positive vision of the market economy. But also, again, this, this, this three-legged stool of a free market, of robust culture of virtue plus a democratic political order. And if you read the encyclical, so even just getting away from the the, the more or less, um, I would call it mildly positive view of the free market that is articulated in that document, what you get is this, this emphasis upon you need these three things to go together. If you don't have a virtuous culture, markets and the democratic society are going to go bad. If you don't have a free economy and a market economy, that's going to have some negative economic implications. If you don't have a, a system of checks and balances, you're going to end up with some very nasty political problems. So that was very much core to what you might call the political vision that's articulated in that encyclical. And a great deal of that, I think, comes from some of the ideas that Michael Novet had expressed in the spirit of democratic capitalism and in some subsequent writings to that. It was also during this time in the 1980s that Novak uh, befriended uh, a young seminarian at the Catholic University of America by the name of Robert Sirico. Yes, that's right. They um, met in the 1980s. Uh, Father Sirico was then a seminarian. Uh, was invited to spend time with Michael Novak, particularly at his house where they would have these dinners where different people whose names are very well known to name today, people, names like Charles Krauthammer, uh, etc., would come and, and have dinner. And uh, Michael would say that, <clears throat> in retrospect, one of the things he was trying to do was to show some of the people who were coming to these dinners by no means all were were Catholic and, and not even Christian in many cases, uh, that this was a, a seminarian who was intellectually serious but also was taking economic matters very seriously. So that's where their particular connection began. Talk about his influence on the Acton Institute in general. Uh, the thought, Father Sirico, as I said earlier, th th thought of uh, Novak perhaps as the grandfather of the Acton Institute. If he and Chris Maurin could be considered the fathers, Novak was the grandfather. Talk about his influence on Acton uh, and, and maybe a little bit, you, you, you knew him as well. Give us a little bit of personal insight into his influence on your thinking. Well, I think it's true to say that 
the, the book, The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism, uh, precisely because it's a theologically ecumenical book. It's not a specifically Catholic book. It's an ecumenical book. It draws upon Roman Catholic, but also Eastern Orthodox and Evangelical and Protestant thinkers, uh, which is very much the model of what we have here at Acton today. And it's the book did emphasize that you, the market economy, you need a free market for a free society, but a free economy is not sufficient for a free society. You need that, but you also need this a strong system of limited government, and you also need a particularly robust moral culture. And that's more or less the message I think that the Acton Institute articulates. So in that respect, the intellectual vision is 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 very much informed by Michael Novak's theological and moral and economic case for the free economy. He also had other other um, impacts, though. He introduced people to Acton's work. The Acton Institute has an annual award called the Novak Award, which is given to an up-and-coming scholar every year. And this has been going on since 2001, who best articulates some of the ideas and thoughts and, and vision that you find in much of Michael Novak's work. Uh, Michael regularly lectured for us on different occasions. Uh, towards the end of his life, he became quite involved in Acton University, which is our, our three-day three summer university that is held in Grand Rapids every year. Uh, so I remember very well seeing him there last year in, in his wheelchair and surrounded by students. He was also very good at cultivating young minds and directing people in the directions that he thought they would be able to, to serve the church, but also what he thought were the right types of ideas. Um, another thing I would say about Novak in terms of his influence on me was I first met him, I think it was in 1994, I was just beginning uh, my doctoral studies at Oxford, and I was, wanted to meet Michael Novak, who was, of course, in the United States, and I wanted to meet him and get to know him a little better uh, because I had a suspicion that some of his ideas were very similar to some of the ideas that I had. Uh, and in fact, he offered me a job at one point, uh, very early in the 1990s. Uh, so I knew him very well. I knew his family very well. I stayed in his house on several occasions when I was um, uh, a graduate student and visiting the United States. And he was forever putting people, me in touch with different people, suggesting that I read different things. And then he was very encouraging of me when I decided to come and work at the Acton Institute and, and basically come to live in the United States. Uh, and he, he really did have a very good model, I think, of how to present ideas and how not to present ideas. Because one of the things about Michael was he didn't get into, he didn't get into sort of personal vitriolics with people. He wasn't interested in that. People, he knew that there would be people that disagreed with him, but, but he, his view was, well, most of these issues are prudential, so we are free to disagree about these issues. But he also wanted people to take the case for the free market more seriously uh, in an in-depth intellectual way. And that's been more or less the way that I've tried to model my approach when I talk about questions of uh, political economy. So he was very much a mentor to me, not just on a scholarly level, but in a terms of um, how you proceed, how you carry yourself when you're trying to make often complex and sometimes deeply controversial intellectual arguments to audiences that aren't always particularly receptive to them. Michael Novak, really an intellectual giant of the 20th century, uh, a great man. And uh, Sam Gregg, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Free Act. And to remember him, 
Uh, he's going to be uh, he's going to be missed around here. I can say that for sure. Thank you, Mark. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our podcast team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear back from our listeners. Feedback is super important to me because it lets me know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most, and also how I can improve this show to make sure you're getting the most out of it. You can reach our team at actinline at actin.org, or you can call our office at 616-454-3080. And if you like our show, you know what to do. Leave us those ratings and reviews on the Apple Podcast app and subscribe. Act in Line is on YouTube, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 